Well, hello there, and welcome to Pick 6 Movies, the podcast where each season we select six movies that are all related to a single theme, and on each episode, we explore the people in front of and behind the camera and try to make sense out of how and why each of these movies was made. And on top of all that, we give you an in-depth, detailed review of the entire film to see if it's any good. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my lifelong friend, Mr. Bo Ransdell, we are continuing this season's theme, not that one, this one, where we are featuring six terrible movies with titles that are regularly confused with films that are definitively better than their cinematic doppelganger. This is episode three of season eight, featuring a remake, or arguably a sequel, to one of the most terrifying movies of the 1980s. We're talking about the spooktacular reboot of Poltergeist. That's right, there was a remake of Poltergeist. What? You don't remember it? That's okay, neither did we. And if you're concerned that you haven't seen it, well that's alright too. We're about to break this down shot for shot, word for word, wince for wince, so that you don't have to go back and watch a movie that most people don't even know exists. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode featuring ghosts and ghost hunters and a creepy clown doll. It's time for us to hold hands and clean house as we take on the immediately forgettable, frightful failure of 2015, Poltergeist. Hey, Bo, see what you can do to make this movie a little less awful. This is the story of two directors, one a maverick, the other who would define the mainstream. Two men who are thrust together at a central point in their careers and who will forever be linked by that moment. But first, let's talk about movies. A movie set is a big place. On Hollywood productions, there are hundreds of people milling about. The guys and gals who tape down the power cables, rig the lights, hold the microphones, costume the actors, prepare food for lunches. It's a small city filled with citizens all marching toward a single goal. Shoot a movie as best you can. The director of a movie is generally considered the creative visionary of a film. He or she wrangles the sound department and the director of photography together to get the look and sound he or she wants, along with the lighting crew, of course, and more than anything, holds in his or her head, or on a series of storyboards, the grand vision for the film. It is the director who acts as a conductor for this symphony of filmmaking. The one who knows how all these little scenes shot out of order come together to tell a story and, if everything goes just right, to join the pantheon of cinematic greats. And for the movie Poltergeist, the horror hit first released in 1982, the question of who that director was remains a mystery. See, Steven Spielberg, you know him, the guy who directed Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws and Jurassic Park and Ready Player One. Wait, did he really direct Ready Player One? That can't be right. That movie's awful. Terry, fact check Spielberg directing Ready Player One. He did? Jesus. Anyway, Steven Spielberg was slated to direct another movie in 1982, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. In fact, his contract stated that this would be the only movie he could direct in the year of our Lord, 1982. But he had written another movie, a sort of sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, called Night Skies. 
Night Skies would be similar to the scene in Close Encounters, where all the toys go batshit in the kid's bedroom, and he gets sucked up into space as his mother screams up at the clouds. That happened in that movie. Yikes! So Spielberg was all fired up to direct this movie he'd written that was far more horror-leaning than Close Encounters, but he was contractually unable to do so. And so he turned to another director to give him a hand, one who was very familiar with horror filmmaking, what with having directed one of the greatest of all time. Toby Hooper was born in Austin, Texas, where his father Ray ran a movie theater. Hooper loved the movies, and much like Spielberg, grew up making movies on his father's 8mm camera. When he went to college, he majored in film studies too, and spent most of the 1960s as a professor and a documentarian. And then the 1970s came along, and with it, the horrors of Vietnam. Drawing on the shocking images televised every night depicting soldiers maimed and killed overseas, and the local legends of serial killers Ed Gein and Elmer Wayne Henley, Hooper concocted a story about regular old human beings being the true villains of his horror film. At that time, and this may be hard to believe, most horror movies were about ghosts or ghouls or werewolves. Few films actually featured a regular schmegular person doing the dark business of murdering the characters in a movie. Those that did were largely rip-offs of the pioneering thriller Psycho. But what Toby Hooper had in mind was something else entirely. Coupled with the oil crisis, the sense that the news and government were all lying to the people of America, Vietnam, these things were rattling around in Hooper's head. And then, one fateful evening near Christmas, in a department store teeming with pissed-off, bustling consumers, Hooper found himself in the hardware section, staring at the mob around him. He said later, quote, I was kind of freaking. I just wanted to get out of there, get out of the crowd. And so I found myself in front of a chainsaw display in the hardware department, and that's where the idea came from. Well, if I pick this damn thing up and start it, they'll part like the Red Sea and I can get out of here. End quote. The movie was shot for next to nothing, about $140,000, and Hooper had his cast and crew working 16-hour days in the Texas heat. A fun fact, the opening narration, the one that claims the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a true story, is done by Night Court's own John Larroquette, who was paid in marijuana. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was submitted to the MPAA upon completion, and Hooper had hoped for a PG rating, since there's not all that much blood in the movie, nothing overtly violent for the most part, and also, and this is pure conjecture, because a lot of pot got smoked. The MPAA returned an X rating instead of the expected PG, and Hooper had to trim some of the movie down just to get it to an R. And that's the real magic trick of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. While you see very little, the impression the viewer is left with well, you're just sure you saw someone get sliced up by a chainsaw, but it never happens, not on screen anyway. Hooper made a movie where the viewer is a co-conspirator in the film's violence, a willing contributor to the grisliest moments in the film. It is a disturbing and powerful piece of work, and it hit screens like a bomb. It was surprisingly well-reviewed and made about $30 million on its initial run. A giant success by any measure, and it would mark for Hooper the height of his success, at least until we get to the subject of this story. While Hooper was freaking people the hell out with his cannibal family in Texas, Steven Spielberg was busy making his own film career the stuff of legend. 
Unlike Hooper, Spielberg never finished college. He'd made a short film called Amblin, from which his later production company would get its name, and that short film was so well-received, it nabbed him a directing contract from Universal. They started him off in television, where he got his start directing an episode of Night Gallery, featuring the big-time star Joan Crawford. She was naturally stunned that someone of her stature would be left in the hands of the then-21-year-old Spielberg. After a few scenes, though, she changed her tune. Crawford later said, quote, When I began work with Stephen, I understood everything. It was immediately obvious to me, and probably everyone else, that here was a young genius. I thought maybe more experience was important, but then I thought of all those experienced directors who didn't have Stephen's intuitive inspiration, and who just kept repeating the same old routine performances. That was called experience. I knew then that Steven Spielberg had a brilliant future ahead of him. He directed some more TV, including Marcus Welby, MD, and Marshall, Counselor at Law, before Universal signed him up to do some TV movies, the most famous of which is Duel. That movie starred Dennis Weaver as a guy being chased by a mysterious and violent trucker on the desert highways. It's really good. He made some more TV movies, none quite as good as Duel, before his feature debut, The Sugarland Express. It's basically one big chase movie with Goldie Hawn, and it's pretty good, but it didn't do so hot financially. As for freshman films, Hooper wins hands down. But then came Jaws, and Spielberg went on a roll, creating some of the biggest movies in cinema history. While Spielberg was packing theaters, Toby Hooper was making grindhouse films like Eaten Alive, about a guy who murders people and disposes the bodies via alligator, and the truly excellent and scary miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Then there was The Fun House, about teens getting killed off in that titular fun house. And Hooper should have worked more, but he was in the grip of a cocaine addiction that led him to being fired from several projects that might have propelled him to greater things. When Steven Spielberg realized he could not direct his alien horror movie, Night Skies, he found Toby Hooper an acceptable substitute. Spielberg admired Texas Chainsaw and Hooper's gonzo spirit, and the two began talks, and it was Hooper who suggested Night Skies be steered away from aliens and toward something more supernatural. The two of them drew up storyboards for the new version, now called Poltergeist. And here we get into the controversy. Who directed Poltergeist? Type that into Google and you'll get a lot of different answers and reasons why. Most suggest that Steven Spielberg was the de facto director of Poltergeist, largely fueled by an LA Times report from the set, in which Spielberg was noted to be, well, there all the time. And there was a quote from Tangina Barrett herself, Zelda Rubenstein. She described conflict between Hooper and Spielberg on the set and later said, quote, I can tell you that Steven directed all six days I was there. I only worked six days on the film, and Steven was there. Toby set up the shots, and Steven made the adjustments. End quote. She also alluded to Hooper's cocaine use, saying he allowed, quote, unacceptable chemical agents into his work. The way Spielberg later described it, he said, Toby isn't a take-charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod agreement, and that became the process of collaboration. This would suggest that it wasn't so much that Spielberg set out to direct Poltergeist, 
but that Hooper was unfocused and not wholly up to the task, placing Spielberg in the director's chair in absentia. There was collaboration between the men, to be sure, but Hooper seems to have been a victim of his own early success. Even the release of Poltergeist, which was met with critical enthusiasm and did great at the box office, couldn't quite pull him out of his decline. He still made movies and had a three-picture deal with the infamous Golan Globus Company where he would make the totally insane Life Force, featuring sexy nude vampires and the destruction of London, a remake of Invaders of Mars and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which has a tremendous Dennis Hopper performance in it. But none of these were big hits, and most lost money, especially the stupidly expensive Life Force. Relegated to B-movie productions, Hooper worked steadily until the mid-2000s, when health and an inability to get his productions off the ground conspired to put him into retirement. He passed away in 2017, a legend in the horror film community, but there is an undeniable sense he could have been so much more. Still, the guy directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that, as it happens, goes a very long way. Spielberg is still working today, of course. He seems to bounce from historical period dramas to mainstream crowd-pleasers, but it's hard to argue he's at the top of his game these days. Eh, such is life. But for one brief moment, these two men came together to create something truly special in Poltergeist, a movie that still scares and thrills today. It's genuine and awe-inspiring filmmaking, and no matter who pointed the cameraman the right way or found just the right lighting, it wouldn't have been the same if it hadn't been the both of them. Who directed Poltergeist? Maybe they both did in their way. It takes a small city to make a movie, and maybe, in this case, it took a cocaine-fueled introvert and a consumer-friendly filmmaker to create something amazingly palatable, but with a bite. The mainstream married to a more aggressive style of horror. And it is remarkable. I mean, not the movie we're talking about tonight, which I now realize we haven't mentioned at all. It seems to be a movie that was remade because, well, everything is eventually remade. Gil Keenan, the director, was tapped thanks to his work on the very enjoyable Monster House, which boded well, but you know what? Let's let Sam Rockwell give you his thoughts on the movie. Keep in mind, he said this before the movie ever opened. He said, I've seen a little in looping. I hope it's good. I really don't know. I really wish I could tell you. I'm praying that it's, I mean, it's going to be hard to live up to the first one. The first one's pretty damn good. This one's going to be in 3D though, I can tell you that. Can this movie possibly live up to that kind of hype? Is there any way to actually remember you saw this? And was it, in fact, in 3D? Let's bring in our resident Ghostbuster, Chad Cooper, to settle all of this. Ladies and gentlemen, Ghosts and Ghouls, it's 2015's Poltergeist. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the lively discussion portion of Pick 6 Movies. I, of course, am Bo Ranstell, one of your faithful hosts. With me as ever, the uh, the lovely, the ghostly Chad Cooper. This is one of my two favorite parts of our show. Well, yeah, that stands to reason. I mean, if you're, <laughs> if you're not including the drum roll, that's my favorite. And the trumpet guy. Yeah, trumpet guy's pretty good. I like that trumpet guy just sort of like fades off with his trumpet playing every time. Like, he just kind of gives out. 
In my mind, he is eternally playing that trumpet, much like the dog running in Funny Farm, that just every week or so, we just roll back, and there he is, you know, doing his thing. You know, look, life can be uh, brutal, it can be cruel, and having Trumpet Guy as sort of our North Star, it's just Mm -hmm. nice to know that you can count on something. You can absolutely count on Trumpet Guy. You know what you can't count on? Fucking remakes. Huh? (laughs) Am I right, people? Sometimes they're kind of stinky. Sometimes. I, you know, look, there are exceptions that prove the rule. Like, The Thing is a better movie than The Thing from Another World. Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven, The Fly, the Mel Brooks produced The Fly, is a mm-hmm. better movie than the original The Fly. You know, there's a handful of those out there. But for the most part, they're sort of unnecessary at best. And, and impugned the good name of the source material at worst and i would say up front before we get into the film itself i would argue that 2015's poltergeist while being a big stinky poo poo it just feels so insignificant that it can't mar my regard for the original movie only an elementary school production of this film could have less of an impact on besmirching the good name of the original. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think this, in many ways, feels like a high school production at times. Uh, Except with a slightly better special effects budget. And in that sense, I mean, it's more of a high school production as opposed to, say, your middle school production of Poltergeist, where Donnie got After Effects... Uh, on his Adobe subscription last year, so he's mm-hmm. doing some spooky stuff with After Effects. Realistically, the movie feels like a made-for-TV sci-fi original. It does not feel like a motion picture that should have been released in theaters for people to pay actual real money to go see. I would agree with all of that. The only exception I would make to that statement is that the actors in it are very talented actors, but there's just nothing for any of them to do. So they come off looking very silly most of the time. Mm -hmm. We all got bills to pay, Bo. Fair enough, and I hope Sam Rockwell got uh, a new wing on his house. Sam Rockwell got a new set of tires for his automobile. You can see the exact scene where Sam Rockwell stops giving a shit about being in this movie. Is it the first one that he's in? No, there's a point. We'll get to it, and I'll point out to you, this is the moment that he just no longer cares. For what it's worth, I actively do not like this movie. I have to keep reminding myself that I've seen it. Even now, like there, there's a real chance that about halfway through this uh, conversation, I'm going to forget the back end of this movie. <laughs> this is the third time I've seen it, and every time I think, oh, right, they made, they made another poltergeist. Let's kick this thing off. We start off with the MGM logo, and it comes up and it's all distorted. And then we get the ghost house logo, which is this flying skull, and that's pretty scary. That's where I stopped watching the movie, Chad. It seemed a little too scary for me. Look, I'm more frightened by the rooster on the Dick House logo that precedes the Jackass movies. I recoil more watching Johnny Knoxville getting punched in the dick by a spring-loaded, oversized red boxing glove than I did in anything in this movie. Yeah, right. (laughs) Stop me before I sub-reference again. No... Ghost House should be a mark of quality. Like, I don't know that there is a more (laughs) significant cinematic drop-off in quality than Sam Raimi. Yes. 
because there was a point where Sam Raimi was like, hey, I'm doing Spider-Man 2. And by the way, have you seen Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2? And let's not forget about Army of Darkness. That movie kicks ass too. And then at Spider-Man 3, mm-hmm. everything went to shit and it never came back. Well, I think you, if you look at the line chart of quality as it descends, the revenue in his pocket ascends. You're probably right. Like somebody paid him a a shitload of money, I'm sure, to do that Oz the Great and Powerful movie, (laughs) which I only mention because the writer of the 2015 Poltergeist is the same writer as Oz the Great and Powerful, which should explain a lot. It should, but it doesn't. You mentioned in the intro that this movie might have been released in 3D. I, now I wanted to ask, was it? First of all, I didn't see it in the theater, but yeah. was this a 3D release during all of that 3D hubbub? Yeah, there's, I think the the drone scenes at the end in particular, I, I didn't see it in the theater. Uh, I Did I? Again, it's hard for me to remember when and where I saw this movie. <laughs> I think we saw it together. It's like at the end of this movie, the final <laughs> shot is that men in black flashy thing. <laughs> Where, which is an insidious ploy by the filmmakers, where you're like, hey, we should go see that Poltergeist movie. Let's go see it. Buy the ticket, sit down, watch the movie. Flash, hey, we should go see that Poltergeist movie. You know? It was great. I loved it. It was better than Cats. I'll see it again and again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Enjoy that one, kids. (laughs) A reference to a Saturday Night Live sketch that, like, only we remember. It was funny, don't get me wrong, the John Lovitz picture alone is worth its weight in gold. (laughs) But, yeah, so we pull back from uh, a a stupid television screen, like we see a bunch of, you know, red, blue, green pixels, and we pull back, and it's, uh, it's a screen, and we find our kid in the movie named griffin and he's playing a game on his ipad that is one of those games that only exists in movies where it's not a real video game it's just something that kids play in movies i looked it up and on some some reddit whatever bullshit (laughs) thread it said that it was a game called dead trigger but i couldn't be 100 percent certain of that yeah at first i was hoping it was house of the dead Oh boy, that would be a real Ouroboros for us. I would like that. <laughs> that appeals to me. I like symmetry, Chad. Um, and speaking of, this movie, for no good reason, here's another question for you, Chad, just right out of the gate. Is this mm-hmm. a remake or a sequel? It's a remake. You think? Because they sort of allude to the fact that this is a sequel. Mm, I didn't catch that. All right, we'll, it, we'll get it. The into whole it. thing just felt like they were strip mining the original and fucking it up every single step of the way. All right, so we've got Griffin, who is the stand in for the little boy. He's the hero of this movie. Yes, 100%. Credit where credit is due. They did not do a full on Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho that one could have done. Sure. Uh, yes. And That's who did the remake of Psycho. Get yeah, Gus Van Sant. No, no, no. <laughs> In fact, I'm I'm just going to edit Gus Van Sant out and insert me saying like Lars von Trier. <laughs> it was Lars von Trier, right? But Griffin is our hero, yeah. and they you know kind of flip the script a little bit, and that's you know thumbs up for you guys doing something different, but thumbs down to everything else in your shit remake. It's it's so all right. Let's keep going. All right. So then we have Madison, who is our stand-in for Carol Ann, who looks like Carol Ann, except she has dark hair. Like she's one of those like through the looking glass Star Trek villains where you just plant a goatee on them. Yeah, it's, like, it's a real Samantha Sabrina doppelganger likeness. 
<laughs> oh, I'm so pleased. And then we have the older sister, Kendra. And then the mother, as played by Rosemarie DeWitt, uh, whose name is Amy in the movie. And then Eric, as played by Sam Rockwell. Th- this is our nuclear family. Let me also say that Kendra, as a character, she's real bitchy. And we know she's a bitch because she's disrespectful to both her mother and her father. And then she calls her younger brother Griffin a dumbass, which prompts the younger sister to parrot the older sister in calling her 10-year-old brother Griffin a dumbass as well. Because it's funny when kids swear in movies. Right. And here's example number one of the movie trying to be charming in the way that the original was. And it's hard, obviously, not to compare the two because they really are incredibly close uh, in in terms of plot and structure. More so than a lot of remakes that are just like, hey, we're going to take the basic idea and do this other thing with it. And in this case, they're trying to hit those same beats. Like when you first see the family and you've got Craig T. Nelson battling with the remote controls and the kids riding bikes and, you know, all this stuff uh, where you see the family doing their family thing and it feels authentic. You know, it feels like this is a real suburban family doing real suburban family shit. Yeah, it's the opposite of this movie. Right, and that, to that point exactly, in this movie, like hearing these kids call each other dumbass and there's the parents are like, hey, don't call your sister dumbass. Tee-hee. You know, they're, that stuff ought to feel good it ought to feel authentic and it just never does it feels it feels like somebody uh trying to cover up a secret badly um (laughs) you know and you're like what do you mean i didn't bury anything in my backyard don't look at the loose dirt there are no likable characters in this movie no there are no characters that you sympathize with there are no characters that you identify with they're all just like two-dimensional paper dolls yeah which is really unfortunate because as we said they're legitimately good actors in this movie they're just not allowed to do anything that makes them look good so the dad is driving the car with the whole family in it and they're headed to look at a home that they're interested in buying and the camera pans back and we see these power lines and the oldest daughter has already said we can't live in this neighborhood because power lines cause tumors but as the camera moves backward we see that some clever neighbor has taken their lawnmower and perfectly cut out in all capital helvetica font letters the title of the movie poltergeist see i read that as just a coincidence that he was a fan of the original (laughs) (laughs) like hey we got this city property here ain't nobody taking care of it's just a bunch of overgrown (laughs) weeds and whatnot you know it'd be kind of fun if uh it said poltergeist so when you you came home you were like hey it's like that movie that i like that's kind of scary but it's also set in the suburbs so i just put poltergeist over there in the in the lawn uh i i talked to the hoa they said it was fine It was at this point in this film that I had doubts as to whether or not this movie was going to even be remotely passable as a feature film. And I also (laughs) want to note that that the music in this movie is so forgettable. And it is not the work that you found in the original film, which was done by Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Show show favorite Jerry Goldsmith, yes. Yeah, he's an incredibly talented uh, Gremlins. And if you look at his IMDb, he's wonderfully talented with a lot of really good and a little bit of garbage on his resume. But the music in the original film, I'm not going to spend this whole review talking about how the original is great and this one's awful. But it, this 
the music in this movie just feels like a fart in the wind. You know, you kind of remember it being there, but mostly you just remember how bad it stunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After we get the the shot of the lawn work uh, done by the, the neighborhood <laughs> crackpot, uh, a realtor shows up uh, and is showing the the Bowers the house that they're moving into, or supposedly they're just touring. They're taking a look at it, mm-hmm. and there's some business here about how um, Amy, the the wife, is a writer, but she's going to stay at home. And the realtor is like, "Well, what about you, Mister Bauer? What do you do for a living?" And he's like, "Oh, I used to work at John Deere." And she's like, "Oh, really? That's a good job." Yeah, it was till I got fucking laid off. Thanks for bringing it up, lady. Look, man. Here's the thing: if you're looking to buy a house and you got one spouse who's trying to finish the great. American novel while the other spouse is looking for work you know what you add those two things together and you get you ain't buying a house unless you have cash and i mean enough cash to pay for the whole damn house you ain't getting a house like you would need a briefcase filled with bundled 100 dollars bills and then maybe and i stress maybe you can buy a house otherwise you're shit out of luck and i also like that the youngest daughter she comes running through the house and she's like mom mom it has a kitchen and i'm like a kitchen where the fuck did you guys live before a campground wait till this little girl sees the toilets yeah they they came from a koa And I, you're right. I like the fact that he's like, yeah, I got I got tossed out on my ass in my last job. And the realtor doesn't bat an eye. No! She should have walked away, got in her car, and sped off leaving streak marks on the yeah. on the driveway. I'm going to need you all to leave now is the next <laughs> line that should have come out of her mouth. And instead, he just pushes it. He's like, yeah, not only that, you know, I'm a bit of a gambler. I'm in debt a uh, fair amount. And also, I tried some crack to see if I'd get addicted. Yeah, my, my oldest there, she's hooked on the wild turkey. That's been a real problem in and out of rehab. Don't know how we're going to pay for that. My son just sets off fireworks all the time. I hope the neighbors won't mind that little nugget. Speaking of fire, the little one over there, she's a pyromaniac. Burned down the last two houses we lived in. But anyway... It only spread to a couple of houses nearby. Don't worry about it. We all have AIDS, by the way. <laughs> Basically, uh, we we are the Dennis and D. <laughs> of of the neighborhood now amy uh the the mom is like hey there's this field behind the house and it's uh owned by the city is that right and and the realtor's like yeah that's right and you feel like that's gonna have something to do with something but it doesn't no and then griffin (laughs) the the young kid the boy uh gets spooked going up to look in the attic which is it's one of those attics that's been refinished to be a bedroom so griffin wanders into madison's room and a griffin's about what like 10 11 madison's maybe seven eight i don't know how old kids get your guess is as good as mine just trust me on that we're close all right so he walks into madison's room and madison is standing next to this uh closet that has kind of like you know folding double doors and she's like nose to the door and she's talking like quietly to herself but it's not scary at all there's no music to let us know that this should be a scary scene and if i saw a kid talking to a closed closet i'm thinking what best case scenario this kid's got a fun imagination worst case scenario this child is showing signs of early onset schizophrenia 
Griffin, the brother, he, in this movie, he looks like Rusty Venture, boy adventurer. <laughs> he's got, he's got red hair and he's like skinny as a toothpick and he's pasty white. He goes over and he puts his hand on the closet door. And here we get like, the, like the first of like 87 jump scares in this movie. And Griffin has his hand on the door and he's getting ready to open it. And then his dad comes up and gives it the old, Hey champ, what's going on? And you know, scares the shit out of him as an audience. You're like, Oh, okay. You know, whatever. So <laughs> Griffin goes up and yeah, and he looks in the attic and long story short, they just buy this house because they have no jobs and somehow they can make this happen, which in the real world, they can't. Well, the, the realtor says when, when, uh, Sam Rockwell, the, the dad pulls the handle of the closet, when he's trying to open it up, like, Hey, what you looking at in there, champ? Did I scare you? Ooh, somebody made a stinky in their pants. And he tries to open the closet door and the handle comes off in his hand. And he's like, well, guess this house is a piece of shit, huh? And the realtor says, well, this neighborhood was hit hard by the financial crisis and you can get the house super cheap. And that's where he's like, how cheap can we get it? Which means this house is going to be a money pit. And not the fun mm-hmm. kind of money pit with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, a real nope. money pit. Yes. <laughs> a moving truck shows up and backs over their mailbox. And look, someone destroying your mailbox, that's a real pain in the ass to fix. You got to remove the old post. You got to drop in a new post. You got to get a new mailbox. But the dad in this movie, he's totally cool with it. He's like, come on, man. Yeah. Well, it's Sam Rockwell being Sam Rockwell. It's sort of like Jeff Bridges if he were in this movie um, where, where he's just like, hey, come on, y'all. What do you do? Hey, you knock over my my mailbox here. What do you want, a beer? You want a beer? Let's go get a beer. He's a dummy. He in this movie, he is just a knucklehead cover to cover. And then he has, he finds a, a box that they're, you know, sorting or going to throw out. And I don't know why they did that after the move. You know, that's a pre-move kind of activity of sorting. Are you talking out. about when they open up the back of the truck and he finds that duffel bag? Yeah. He's like, hey, my ball bag. Come on. Let's knock a couple balls around. Hey, Eric Griffin, won't you uh, put this glove on? Let's toss the old uh, peanut around a little bit. And this was a real tough scene for me to watch because I flash back to my childhood mm-hmm. where it was like, hey, do you want to play any kind of sports? And I'm like, no, just throw the ball over my head and I'll go get it. Thanks. And that's what happens here where uh, Eric throws the ball at him and uh, Griffin uh, just watches it sail over his head. And he's like, well, I guess maybe we'll uh, enroll him in rugby or something. If you were moving into a house and as the father, you decide to just go play catch with your kid. You're an asshole. This is not the time to play catch with your child. Get to work. I recently moved into a new house. And if my wife saw me throwing catch with my son, she would lose her shit. There are boxes to move and things to unpack. Quit fucking around. And it was at this point in the movie, I thought maybe that the dad in the film was their stepdad because he doesn't behave like any real dad that I've ever been around. He's way too goofy and needy for the love of these three kids. He's got this like, you know, come on champ kind of vibe that's usually reserved for someone who has no legal responsibility for any child. Right, is either a divorced dad, yes. like, like he's just coming over like, hey, I'm just going to take him out for some Sundays, and meanwhile, I'm going to buy him a pony to make you look bad, Deborah. Mm-hmm. He goes, he buys them a Sunday and picks himself up a 12-pack, and when they get home, guess what? Both of those things are gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dad's watching Die Hard. You kids entertain yourself in the other room. No, not that room. That's where all my shit is, the other room. <laughs> 
<laughs> when he throws that ball, he says, when he throws the ball and it goes up in this tree, Griffin says, I missed. And it's like, no, you didn't miss. Your dad's the most ass backwards individual who threw this ball up into a tree. And then the dad's like, I guess I threw it too hard. And it's like, no, you didn't throw too hard. You threw it too high. And then the dad says to this kid, uh, get the ball, kiddo. And then Griffin, this again, like almost trans translucently white child walks over to this tree and this wimpy kid look man he ain't climbing this tree there is a better chance of this child sprouting wings out of his back and flying to the top to get the ball as there is of him actually climbing up the massive branches of this tree boy you make this kid an x-man now you got a movie <laughs> x-men x-men versus ghosts i'm on board that's not what happens no though. instead the the tree growls at him in exhibit a of my prosecution case i like to call hey calm down poltergeist 2015 you don't have to turn everything to 11 yeah and then the kid runs off which you're like that seems to be in line with this little red-headed perpetually fearful child yeah and when he tells his mom i mean immediately or immediately she's just like that's fine griffin just why don't you go inside and find a quiet corner out of the sunlight and <laughs> just whimper quietly yeah and we cut over to madison our carol ann of the movie mm -hmm. who is entertaining herself playing pokey groundy where mm -hmm. she just takes a stick and shoves it into the ground but chad something mm -hmm. from below pushes the stick back up it's not scary. When I saw this, I'm thinking, hmm, there's something kind of unusual about the water levels in this area. Is there an underground gas leak? You know, you should really get the city out here to do an assessment of your property. This might be, you know, pretty expensive there, guy. I think this is as close as this movie comes to the thing I like most about the original Poltergeist, which is the moment where the haunting seems cool. You know, where the whole family's sort of excited about the weird shit happening in their house. Like when they put the helmet on Carol Ann and make her slide uh, across the floor and that I, kind of thing. I, I promised myself I would keep my references to the original at a minimum because I think the original is a fun, scary, crazy movie. And you're right. All of these things that happen in the original that just work so perfectly are just, this movie just fucks it up. It just, it, it it's just. We'll get, all right, all right, let's keep going. Yeah, so Griffin uh, is then grilling uh, his dad on the security alarm because, again, Griffin is the responsible adult in this household. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, what are we going to do if we get broken into? There's this whole back and forth where Sam Rockwell is like, well, uh, we're not going to do that because I'm getting the, the alarm set up. What if the alarm doesn't work? Well, then, you know, we'll hear them. Well, what, what are you going to do then? And it's kind of this escalation. During the scene, the dad says, hey, I'm thinking about getting a dog. And then you're like, oh, that's right. Remember in the original, they had that dog, E-Buzz? And you're like, hey, man, you know what? Don't get your hopes up because ain't no dog showing up in this movie. And if it did, the dog that they get would be a chihuahua or like a French bulldog. Just another totally wrong choice. Their omission of a dog was probably one of the many accidental positives for the filmmaker. Right. Here's a, another way that you, you could possibly be disappointed. And we're just going to pull back <laughs> at the last minute. You, although after th the uh, an improvement to this movie would be a scene where they go to uh, like a, a local shelter where you just see a bunch of cute puppies hopping around for a little bit. That'd be nice. I wish they'd do that for about 20 minutes instead of what really happens. In the next scene, the mom walks over and she gets this small electrical zap from the wooden banister on the stairs. And the dad's like, yeah, that's weird. Wood electrocuting you. That's a real head scratcher, isn't it, mom? 
Yeah, eh, I guess this will come up later, or maybe not. Then Griffin wanders upstairs where he finds uh, Madison playing in her room. And she says, hey, let me. Sh- I want to show you this trick. And then she puts her hand on the closet doorknob and her hair uh, starts to rise and, and poke out as if she is, you know, conducting electricity. And then she has Griffin do it as well. So I guess that's telling us, hey, there is the energy of, of something supernatural or some kind of entity in this house. And these closet doors are still permanently closed. And I just want to say, if I moved into a house, you know what? Strike that. If I was considering buying a house and I couldn't open up one of the closet doors, I am 100% expecting to find on the other side of these doors, the body parts of the butchered wife and children that used to live there. Ergo, I'm not buying this house. Yeah, if there are rooms that are either closed in a way that I can't open it, or, or Chad, your, say, Amityville Red Room in the basement <laughs> is another good example of a poor real estate choice. We cut to the garage where the filmmakers decide to show us the mom doing laundry with all of the lights off, save one fluorescent bulb, and then the mom loses an earring, and somehow, as she tries to get it back, it's lodged between the washer and the dryer, and then the dryer goes off, and we get another dumbass jump scare. And there's a bunch of orange light flashing out of the dryer. And then from under the dryer, this puddle of rancid black liquid starts pouring out on the floor. It it is a massive puddle of runny liquid shit yeah it's just sewage you know bubbling out from beneath the dryer and then she goes to tell as it does from time to time right yeah i mean if you're if you moved into a house sitting on the gateway to hell yes you get uh (laughs) you're gonna get your influx of flies priests are gonna avoid your place that's gonna happen bleeding walls yeah You'll be at dinner, you'll see grandma turn into a bat, you'll say, what the hell was that? (laughs) There are two people listening to this show that get that reference, and it's you and me. I know, I know. (laughs) Still one of the greatest moments of my life. And we're not even going to explain it. Fuck you. Get, you know, make, <laughs> hey, how about you watch something once in a while? How about you you stop living life out in the sunshine and sit your ass down and watch some old comedy specials once in a while? The mom just casually leaves the, you know, shit-filled dryer. She walks out and looks at the dad and she's like, so uh, there's a leak back there. And I was like, a leak? A leak? There is a growing small pool of raw sewage spilling forth in your garage. This woman and I have very different definitions of what constitutes a small leak. Right. Yeah. No, it it should. Her description should be, I believe that Baphomet is vomiting (laughs) up pure evil in our basement. Could you take a look maybe instead of fucking around with the alarm system, which you are clearly breaking, by the way. (laughs) Kendra, the older teenage sister, she's upstairs bitching to her friend about how this new house sucks and how the neighborhood sucks and how everything sucks. And then Kendra, it turns out, is also watching a TV show that is one of those shitty ghost hunting programs. Mm -hmm. And the title of the show is Haunted House Cleaners. Yes. And then... Look, let's let me say this in defense of an actor I dearly love. Jared Harris, who uh-huh. plays uh Kerrigan Burke in this movie. Yeah. 
is a phenomenal actor. He most recently was outstanding on that uh, really, really good Chernobyl miniseries on HBO. Uh, earlier this year, he was on, um, or last year, it was uh, The Terror on AMC, and he was fantastic mm-hmm. on that. He's a brilliant British actor. He was on Mad Men. He was on he Mad was Men, in yeah. those. He was in that second absolutely terrible Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie as Moriarty. Yeah, I mean he's a he's a great actor, and you see him here as the host of this show. Where you, you know his catchphrase is "This house is clean," and it's Jane, not Janie. Uh, that's in the original movie, Kendra. Mm-hmm. You know, fawning over this pockmarked elder British actor, which is a thing that has never happened ever. It saying "This house is clean." It's the second most famous line from the original film. And again, they just fuck it up. Yeah, I I can kind of go with them on the idea of rather than, you know, just some random psychic, it is one of those ghost hunting shows. But then I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of what your movie is, is this ghost hunting team in the house. But he doesn't show up until the third act, you know, like we see him once here and he's gone for the next 50 minutes. He kind of shows up like halfway through the third act. It's yeah, it's yeah, a, he's, it's for real. Like, hey, remember I was in this, and you're like, no, I didn't. But thank God you're here. Maybe something will happen fake, now. If there was a fake ghost hunting show called Haunted House Cleaners, where they sent people in to actually clean, you know, like dust and vacuum real haunted houses, would you watch that? Potentially, I, it would be better than that ghost adventure show. Have you ever watched that one? The one with no. Zach Bagans. Is that the one where it's like three college dudes like making shit up and then they send the the fat bearded one off to get a scared? I think so. I've I've only ever seen the movie called Demon House, I think, that they did. And it's one of those movies where about every 10 minutes, it reminds you how much you hate the main character or, you know, Zach Baggins. In theory, this is a documentary in heavy air quotes. Mm-hmm. But every, like I said, about every 10, 15 minutes, it's just like, oh my God, this guy's just a total cocksucker. Right. I think a lot of that is because um, ghosts are made up and fake. And this is a bunch of bullshit yeah yeah that's part of the problem for sure chad (laughs) it's like those fucking bigfoot shows or whatever the fuck else if you're if you have a whole show where your premise is like hunting for something and you never find it then your show is bullshit right that that's my argument whenever someone asks me like hey do you ever watch those ghost ghost hunter shows or bigfoot hunter shows i'm like i don't need to because if they ever catch it I'm going to see that on CNN. It's going to be the biggest thing in the fucking world. Right. Guess what? There's a Bigfoot. Here's a picture of it. You don't think that's going to be on the internet? Yeah, that that ain't flying under the radar, man. Like, everyone's going to know. I'm going to be able to go see it on tour. Mom comes into Kendra's room, and Kendra is, again, a disrespectful asshole to her mother um, because Kendra is a one-dimensional character, and bitchy is what we use to define her. Um, We come back up to Madison's room, and there's a shot of the stuck closet with a bunch of small toys stuck to the door defying gravity, and then when mom knocks on the door all the toys and the cars and the little tiny animals they all fall to the ground vertically right the ghosts are like oh mom's here yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> Cheese it. It's her mom. And Griffin says, hey, mom, the, the door is still locked. And mom's like, oh, yeah, really? Is there a flow of runny diarrhea coming out from under the door? No? Well, then count yourself lucky. Time for bed. Let's go. Make this shit happen. Right. And I swear to God, if I have to clean blood off these walls one more time tonight. <laughs> During this scene, mom goes over to Madison and Madison says that it's her friends in the closet and that they're lost people. And then we get a bunch of pretentious child acting from this little girl that makes you want to throw up in your mouth. Um, Mom puts Griffin to bed up in his room, which is in the attic. And I cannot imagine how horrific it must be to live in the attic of a house. First off, you know it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle of February, no matter where you live in this country. And then Griffin's attic prison room has a skylight which makes you question the architectural design of this room because why would you have a skylight in the attic it are you trying to make the room even more unbearably hot are you is maybe you're like what smoking meat up there or tobacco (laughs) right that's what i was gonna say it's just a tobacco warehouse up there Griffin, remember, this is all cured, so if you start to get woozy, come downstairs. The kids at school make fun of me. They say I smell like ham. Oh, tell them they've just never been to Virginia, you know? They're they're just jealous. They're jealous that you smell like a smoked ham and bacon. Oh, that smooth Carolina smoke. When I get to school, there's like 24 dogs behind me, Mom. (laughs) I'm like a human sausage. (laughs) Yes, you are. You're my little sausage. Is that supposed to make me feel better? I don't know. Are you my real mother? Because I don't think that's my real dad. I'm the hero of this film, remember? Well, I got you at a mall. I think that should count for something. In this scene, Griffin's all freaked out, which he has every right to be. And the mom's like, hey, you know what, Griffin? There's nothing to be afraid of. And just so that you know, that phrase has never worked ever in the history of parenting. Yeah, I equate it. Like, it doesn't work for me if I tell myself that. I, I like Sometimes I'll spook myself real good. And uh, and when I'm going downstairs into the basement where it's dark and spooky and, and there are spiders and whatnot, I'll, I'll get that urge to like, oh, I got to hurry up and turn on a light. So I get that. And no one telling me like, oh, don't worry about it. It's it's fine down there. That shit ain't gonna fly. I know what's down there. It's monsters. It's spiders. I usually think of something that's more scary than the thing I'm scared of. So whatever it is that I'm scared of, I think like, hey, maybe there's a guy behind you who's gonna rape you. And then I look behind me and I'm like, oh wait, there's no guy back there gonna rape me. And then I'm like, oh, everything's better now. Well, I do the same thing. Only in, uh, if I'm like, oh my god, what if there are spiders down there? What if I have lymphatic cancer? right see you put it in context yeah that feels better let's get to mom and dad's bedroom as they're getting ready for their first night in their spook house or as i call it exhibit b in this movie trying too fucking hard to be charming and instead it just makes me want to hate both of these characters i like that dad pours a little j and b into coffee mugs and then mom suggests that they take griffin to a shrink because he's all weird and then the mom and dad just drink booze out of their mugs and i was like is that a more acceptable form of frank on it's always sunny hiding wine in diet coke cans Like, is that a brilliant idea that we haven't really thought about? Excuse me. Is that a brilliant idea that I haven't thought about? Yeah. I mean, I'm one step ahead of you. Like, there's a reason they call it Irishing up the coffee. Then this scene, the dad says, hey, you know what? He's not weird. I had a brother who was quiet and shy. And the mom was like, yeah, now he's a weirdo and he lives alone in an airstream. And then the dad combats her comment by saying he doesn't live alone. He lives with 20 cocks or two. No, it's cockatoos, the birds. Wait, he, he said what now? Cockatoos. It's a, it's a bird. It's not 
20, 20 cocks or twos. Oh, I totally misheard that line. Actually, you saw you saw the better movie. Ernest. <laughs> so Griffin <laughs> then hears some tune playing, and he discovers that there's a ghost door in his room. So he decides to open this, I would call it cat's eye sized door. Mm-hmm. And inside is a, a chair with a pull string. A child-sized rocking chair. Right, which is, all of this is horrifying. If you open a m- small door in an attic and find this, your house is fucking haunted. There is no well, <laughs> he, ifs, ands, or buts. But he pulls the light switch and a waterfall of clown dolls pours from some hidden chamber. Well, because it's not a light switch, it's, it's like this doll was the linchpin that uh-huh. held all the other clown dolls in place. Much like when they uh, described all the diseases that Homer Simpson has <laughs> that were in perfect balance. And if one or uh, uh, Mr. Burns has that, if you remove one, he actually becomes sick. And it's that kind of thing where as soon as Griffin pulls this pull string, I don't know what a thousand clown dolls fall mm-hmm. on top of him, which look, man, you, you don't buy a home without having a licensed inspector go over every nook and cranny of that house. It's not how things are done. Yeah, and the clown, by the way, because he's, I guess, pulled this pull string, it winds the string back, and what he has pulled is the nose. The pull string comes out of the face of this clown doll, and it just laughs like the devil. You know, it's just... (laughs) And in a way that, again, as a child's toy, the only reason you would ever do this is if you were conducting some Walter Skinner-esque like behavioral experiment mm-hmm. where it's just like, Hey, I wonder how we can, I don't know, traumatize children with dolls. I'm trying really hard not to compare this movie to the original, but these clowns need addressing. In the original film, the clown doll is a more friendly, happy clown doll. It looks more like Bozo the clown at a certain point in the film. This happy-go-lucky clown, when the scary parts kick in, it transforms into a much more frightening clown with a much more heavy, sinister tone. In this movie, the clown doll just looks like the devil in white face makeup from the very start. Yeah. In fact, it's on the poster for the movie. It's just this clown doll. Right, but that didn't have shit to do with the whole film. It's not in the movie very much. It's not like Annabelle, but it's a clown. And the movie, of course, doesn't know how to actually build tension like in again in the original film you have this whole sequence where the kid is uh, as the storm is going the kid sees this doll across the room and it is like trying to throw his coat to cover it but not get out of bed and it falls off the clown and it it's a brilliantly constructed scene but the first time he throws his coat over the clown doll and he's safe and he goes back to bed. Then the second time when the storm is coming through, he tosses his coat over the clown doll and it catches, but it falls off. It's just, God, oh, it's so good. I know. I, like We could stop this recording and just go watch Poltergeist right now and I'm perfectly fine. It, it's one of my favorite movies ever. It, it's so, it's so much fun. It's, uh, yeah, all right, let's but, just keep going. So. In this movie, though, after the giant box of clowns uh, falls on him, um, we cut to the parents having this debate about whether Amy should go back to work. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm the breadwinner. Uh, here, just uh, let me have a little more of that bourbon while we're at it. Uh, but no, I'm the responsible one in this house. The mom says, hey, maybe you could go coach baseball in high school. And you're like, what? Maybe you could what? 
You don't just decide to go do that. You have to have a degree in education and then you get a job teaching. Then maybe, maybe you get a position coaching baseball. Well, don't worry, Chad, because immediately he's like, oh, fuck that. How about uh, just drink some more? And hey, by the way, they're having a party tomorrow night, you know, with some friends of ours. And uh, I think I can get a job uh, with, with those folks, like uh, somebody's hiring one of, one of them friend of a friend's kind of situations. Who are these people? Who did they meet? I don't, who knows? All, all we know for sure is these two are finally about to get down. They're having a little sexy time. And uh-huh. again, a pale imitation of the original where like you actually believe this married couple can smoke a little pot and get a little randy, you know, as opposed to... To this couple that's just like well i think it's the time in the scene where we fuck and it's <laughs> so they start making out a little bit and then griffin busts in and he's like hey mom dad uh look i found a collection of sinister clown dolls yes plural sinister clown dolls uh, in this weird creepy door in my room and there's also a couple of child-sized rocking chairs in there why don't you fucking pull up your pants and get upstairs and figure this shit out now Also, how about a home inspector? Did anyone think of this? We should have found this well before moving in. And mom, I know you've got a problem with that sludge in the basement. That is another thing we should have sniffed out. I'll tell you what, dad. Why don't you go check upstairs? I'm going to hit the yellow page and see what I can do about fixing these problems around here. Dad comes upstairs and he's like, man, where did all these clown dolls come from? And Griffin's like, weren't you listening, shithead? I found them when I pulled on that string that I thought was a light switch and they all fell out of some sort of hidden compartment. Who collects fucked up clown dolls, dad? And the dad's like, hey, you know, champ, people collect all kinds of weird things. That's all you have to say? People collect weird things, champ? Yeah, you know, clown dolls human skin all kinds of weird things dad inspects this cubby hole and then we get basically the same hilarious scene from national lampoon's christmas vacation season four episode two of pick six movies where a squirrel jumps out and just terrorizes the family as they run from room to room in hilarious fashion yeah yeah it's quite a quite a sight and (laughs) the the family is is at the bottom of the attic steps wondering what the hell's going on uh, up there and eric uh the dad comes down the steps and is like oh my god it's horrible it's a squirrel and he doesn't come across like a dad at all he doesn't come across as like a dad under personal stress and financial pressures. He comes across as your alcoholic uncle that can't keep a job and relies on the generosity of strangers to keep his life and his personal habits afloat, specifically drinking and gambling. The kind of guy who shows up at your house and drinks all the maraschino cherry juice out of the cupboards. <laughs> Again, there's two people who get that reference, and it's you and me. Uh-huh. La 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 la. <laughs> sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog. <laughs> and then Griffin is like, hey, Dad, uh, newsflash, guess who's not sleeping upstairs with the rabbit squirrel? <laughs> this guy right here. Turns out I'm sleeping between you and mom, so keep it in your pants tonight. <laughs> so it's nighttime, and the family's all asleep, and somehow. Everybody got all of that uh, clown doll business. And um, at this point, the lights in the house start glowing brightly one by one. And then a toy piano begins to play in a terribly annoying fashion. And then the downstairs TV comes on. And then Griffin gets up between his mom and dad and he heads downstairs. And he finds his younger sister, Madison, talking to the TV that is displaying white static. 
And again, in my opinion, it's more schizophrenic than it is communicative with the spirits in the netherworld. I, I don't know exactly what is trying to be told here in terms of the story, other than there's just this weird energy and weird shit is happening. Madison's looking at this white static on the TV, which, by the way, TVs don't do that anymore. That was They just have black screens. Yeah, uh, this is a real problem because even, first of all, there's never a channel that is not on the air anymore. And if you did somehow find, I don't know, like channel 312 or some shit. <laughs> The static channel. All static all the time. White noise to help you sleep and relax. It boggles the mind that they go to the trouble of updating some of this, but not other stuff that seems less logical. You know, Mm -hmm. like we've got our Ghost Hunter show. And I'll I'll say, here's a thing I'll give the movie credit for. Because as much as we're bad-mouthing this film, and it deserves it, there is kind of a nice visual here where you see Madison put her hand on this staticky screen. And a hand, like, from the other side of the screen presses against hers and then you see a bunch of other hands around that one appear and it's like oh that's kind of legitimately a creepy visual uh representation of hey there are all these spirits in this house and something heinous is about to go down but haven't you seen that before in zombie films yeah to an extent but i you know again i'm looking for anything to give this movie credit for so that we're not just constantly dunking on it and this is the one time i thought like oh that's neat i wish they didn't do it three other times in the movie but that was kind of okay uh I'll give you that. But you know what? Let's pivot 180 degrees and get back into Shitville, USA. Because during this scene, Madison turns around and looks at her brother and she says, they're coming. And then there's this electrical surge and things get louder and louder and then they go pop. And here Madison utters the most famous line from the original movie in a read that, look, I want to see the outtakes that they (laughs) didn't include in this motion picture. Because Madison turns around and she's like, they're here, they're here, here, they're hairy. Hair. Yeah, like uh, uh, Sam Rockwell and his wife have come downstairs and are like, hey, we heard you were about to say the big catchphrase for the movie. Would uh, you want to lay it on us? They're, uh, they're here. Right, let's take it one more time there, Madison. They're here. Uh, all right, we're just going to cobble together what we can out of this. Uh, their hair? A fair representation is her saying, they're here. And that's it. And I like I think I gave it a creepier delivery now that I, I've heard myself. Uh, I should have been in this. I should have played Madison in this film. Oh, my God. I would I would I would give a year's salary to see that. <laughs> yeah. Mom, dad, they're coming. <laughs> Who is the lost people? Jesus Christ. Clean out your ears. It was at this point in watching this film that I respectfully invited this movie to go fuck itself. There was no need for an RSVP in regard to this invitation. I immediately added it to the I respectfully will go fuck myself list of movies from this particular show. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I I think you could have done it at almost any point prior to. I respect the fact that you waited this long. Uh. Kendra comes in in the next scene and she starts bitching that her little brother Griffin broke her phone during all the electrical madness the night before. And Griffin's like, I didn't touch your phone why do i get blamed for everything this is bullshit and she's like it's fried and you're the only one who has the powers of emperor palpatine in this house (laughs) 
And during the scene, Kendra's like, this is bullshit. And then the seven-year-old Madison's like, this is bullshit. And it's like, oh, it's so fun with kids swear. You know, have you ever seen the Bad News Bears? That's a lot of fun. We have fun around here swearing. One bitchy moment I like from Kendra here is when uh, she's talking about like, hey, I need a new phone. And they're like, hey, we can't afford a new phone right now. Why don't you get a job? And when Kendra is like, how about you get a job? Who's she talking to, the mom or the dad? Don't matter. Neither one of them's working for shit. (laughs) I thought that was legitimately funny. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily meant to be as funny as I found it, but I was was really on board with the movie for about, I don't know, eight-tenths of a second there. In the next scene, Mom and Madison, they're out planting flowers in the yard. And then Mom asks Madison about her schizophrenic tendencies. And then over nearby Griffin, he's just like digging in the dirt, you know, the way normal kids do. And then he finds a bone in the yard, you know, the way normal kids do. And then the dad comes over, you know, goofball dad. And he's like, well, hey there, look at this, a bone. I'll bet it's a horse or a pig. (laughs) And I was like, what are you talking about? There is a better chance of finding human remains in your yard than there are of finding a horse or a pig. You're a dumbass. You need to call the authorities now. Yeah, perhaps I'm predisposed to think along these lines. But if I start adding up the, my daughter is saying that the lost people are here. There's an attic full of clown dolls. You know, demon vomit is bubbling up from the basement. (laughs) All the electrical appliances keep blowing up in the house and wood shocks me and my wife, as well as the bones we've now found in the yard. Uh-huh. I think it might be time to call a priest. Dad goes to a hardware store to buy electrical supplies to fix all the shit that blew up the night before, as well as some squirrel traps. And during the scene, Dad's credit card doesn't go through, and he's like, uh, my wife was going to cancel one of these, and he's all embarrassed. And then <laughs> Wait, to ease but, the awkward... But the, the cashier is like, huh, it doesn't say canceled, it just says declined and overdrawn. Also, I think it says deadbeat. People work at the cash register can't tell that. It just says declined or unauthorized. It doesn't say deadbeat loser over their limit. It does, though. It does. There are codes for not deadbeat, but it'll say like there's a code for um, keep this card. If it's been canceled or reported lost, it won't say declined. It'll say hold. Right, but that's if it was if it was lost or stolen. It doesn't go into say like you're over your limit or you're a, a a deadbeat that can't pay their bills. Plus, I think this cashier can just give Sam Rockwell in this movie a good one time up and down and and uh-huh. take a pretty good read of what the situation is. Oh, my wife canceled <laughs> this card. I don't think so. I think there's a little bit of improv from Sam Rockwell here. I mean, he finally ends up giving her a third card, and it all goes through. And then the dad gets back in his car, and just out of frustration, he's just starts banging the steering wheel of his car and then dad looks in the rearview mirror and he sees a shopping mall and as an audience member i was thinking one are malls a thing because i haven't been to one in forever and number two is he gonna go rob one of the stores inside this mall he's about to drive through like blues brothers style this mall yeah and this is another one of those situations where i feel like the movie drops a thread that could have been interesting like if the dynamic of this family is he's out of work and as we'll see in the next scene he's trying to overcompensate and therefore drive the family deeper into the situation they're in and that's putting a strain on the marriage like all of this could have been an interesting dynamic in the movie but there's exactly one scene where it matters which one is that as soon as he gets home and the wife is like 
the fuck are you doing with all this shit? You know, let's let's put that conversation on hold for a moment because back at the house, Griffin is carrying a box of comic books up to his attic hot box of a bedroom. By the way, he needs these things bagged and boarded. I mean, what are you doing, kid? For Christ's sake. Look, you're the <laughs> smart one in the family. These things can be an investment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it bo- it bothered me a lot as I saw it, like him just holding the, this crate of comic books. I was like, "You son of a bitch! You you have a bad father for letting you walk around with those comic books like that." <laughs> On his way to his bedroom, a baseball rolls across the floor and taps into a door. You remember baseballs, right? His nemesis <laughs> hiding up in the trees, and then <laughs> we get this two. We meet again, baseball. It is I, Griffin. <laughs> Your mortal enemy. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> See how you like a little it, Tom Tucker baseball? And then we get a two to three minute long scene of Griffin walking around saying, Maddie, Maddie, is that you? And then doors creak and pop. And it's not scary. It's not suspenseful. And then Griffin goes into um, Madison's room and he sets down the baseball and then it rolls over to the still locked closet doors. And then Griffin gets all a spooked. And he turns around and runs away um, when the music blares loudly, only to see all of his comic books are now stacked up like a house of cards. And then they kind of explode out and fly down the hallway. I'm going to go back to the original. In the original movie, this scene is done with dining room chairs around a kitchen table. And it is so well executed. It is frightening. It is magical. It is... I can still remember the first time I saw it of how insanely... In fact, it was almost like the movie magic of how they did this in the original film of seeing Jo Beth Williams push these six chairs against a table and the camera panning away for about eight seconds and then panning back and seeing a pyramid of these chairs. I still don't know how they did it. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's fucking terrifying. Yeah, it, and, but it also is the prelude to the point in the movie where they become enamored with the phenomena going on in their house. Yeah, it's not scary. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like, hey, there's this thing that we don't understand, but it doesn't seem harmful. And that's why when in the original, when it takes the turn to getting scary, it's all the scarier because you've gotten used to the idea of this phenomenon going on, but it's always been benign. And then suddenly it becomes incredibly, you know, aggressive and it's so good. And then this movie is poop. Fucks it all up. It just, (laughs) God. (laughs) <laughs> All right. And then Sam Rockwell comes home and he's like, hey, look what I got for everybody. I got pizza like uh, Madison wanted. That's your name, right? Madison. All right. And then here's a <laughs> phone for Kendra. It's brand new. And she's like, oh, my God, Dad. And then uh, Griffin, I got you an AR drone. Uh, whatever that is. And then, uh, uh, and then Amy, I got you some earrings because I know you dropped the one. And I figured, hey, why not just get you two? And the whole time, Amy is just like fuming where she's like, you motherfucker. Like, we've got exactly one good credit card. I know that. Add. Had yeah. one good credit card. And now I can do the quick math on everything you've bought. And we've got about, oh, I don't know, $12.76 left on this card. <laughs> and we've got to live on that until you find a job, which you don't seem to be doing that, like going after <laughs> tenaciously. While dad's playing poor man's summertime Santa, Griffin is just screaming at his father. He's like, dad, I saw some shit today that will turn your hair white. Get your ass upstairs now. This house is fucked. 
Listen to me. And dad's all like, yeah, champ, tussle, tussle hair, whatever you say, buckaroo. They just kind of ignore him to the point where uh, the mom says, like, hey, Griffin, you're acting like the baby of this family. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> i'm the baby all right fine i'll tell you what i'm gonna be upstairs i'm gonna have a cigar and just try to calm down for a second and later amy and uh eric are in their bedroom uh mom and dad and she's like you know i'm really starting to worry that he needs to see somebody you know like a professional and they have this this brief conversation again this is the only time any of this matters where she's like why did you buy all that shit by the way and he says well i just i want to give you and the family everything you want and she lets him off the hook so easy where she's like you know what it was a bad day it's tomorrow will be better and you're like tomorrow will be better tomorrow you got no money <laughs> unless you plan to take to the streets and become a lady of the evening I don't see a direct line of income for this family anywhere. See, this is why you can't buy lottery tickets with credit cards. <laughs> Shit like this. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, all they're going to end up doing is supporting the local schools. Play the lottery. <laughs> In the next scene, mom and dad go to dinner at uh, at the Doe's house, uh, John and Jane, and... They've lived in their current house, I think, 24 hours. So they're off to have dinner with total strangers. Who are these people? We don't know. How did our mom and dad meet them? We don't know. What is their relationship with these people? Who cares? None of this makes any sense at all. And while at this dinner party, mom and dad, they leave Kendra in charge of Griffin and Madison. If, if I may. Sure. This is where this becomes kind of a sequel to the original. Because as they're, as Sam Rockwell is throwing back some bourbons, like you do uh -huh. when you're trying to get a job. Right. Uh, they tell him like, hey, where did you move? And he tells them Casa Verde or whatever it is. And they're like, oh yeah, that's a subdivision where a, a few years ago, my brother lived there. And it turned out that they had moved uh, or they, they'd originally built it on a cemetery and they had to move all the bodies, which to me suggests, hey, the events of the original Poltergeist happened in this universe and then everyone just kind of forgot about it or something about a house being sucked into a hell dimension one night. And they're just like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, instead, uh, they, they moved all the bodies. It's totally fine now. And I, like there is also if you're going to do the economic downturn message of this movie, because they talk about how the neighborhood's gotten kind of shitty and he's out of work and all that kind of thing. Then you make the movie. <laughs> this is some good pick six fan fiction here where they have no choice but to stay in the house because they're upside down in it and they just can't get away from it you know and then you're kind of making you're you're continuing the thread of the story about eric spending all the money and and feeling like he's impotent within his family and all that stuff and it just it never gets anywhere and, and none of that ever happens and it feels like that's the movie this should have been is you take the story of a family trapped by the the economy that's collapsed out from under them and then force them to deal with the supernatural on top of all the financial pressures and you could see that family start to fracture and yada yada yeah and and you make the dad not so much of a sad sack but just someone who is more of 
a victim of circumstance. Right. Like the menu, the plant he worked in for years and years closed down and he doesn't right. have the skills to do another job. And what is he going to do? And you're actually saying something with this movie as opposed to jump scare part three. But I think that the original film did that. I mean, there was, I know that uh, Craig T. Nelson, known contemporary conservative, he's reading uh, what was it like uh, a book about Reagan in it? You kind of get the deconstruction of the nuclear family, the impact of television on like uh, on culture. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were a lot of, I don't know, either subtle or not so subtle themes that ran through the original film. This movie doesn't do any of that. Yeah. It just trades all of that out, you know, for pennies on the dollar of just shitty jump scares, as opposed to trying to do something that's, I don't know, grounded in more of a, a contemporary framework of storytelling. Yeah. I mean, even the, you know, you move the headstones, but you never move the bodies is sort of like, oh, yeah, that's corporate behavior. It is a company deciding this is the most economical way to deal with this problem, and here's what it results in, you know? So at the, at this dinner party, they're just like, yeah, you know, this was all built on a graveyard, but they moved all the bodies, and you're like, what? And like, yeah, it was a 200-acre cemetery, and the developers moved all of this to a different location. And I was like, look, man, Arlington National Cemetery is just over 600 acres. You're telling me that a developer would move a third of Arlington to build houses? Well, that's the thing, Chad. They don't. They just well, move the headstones. The washing machine was shitting itself whenever you turned on the microwave, so I clearly know that wasn't the case. But wouldn't somebody notice that they didn't move the graves during construction? <laughs> right. You know? That is bureaucracy at its best, where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. You put plumbing in the ground, foundational structures for a home and for roads. They're going to come across a body or two or some caskets. Construction doesn't work that way. You're going deeper than six feet. One of the female dinner guests who gives a shit what her name is because we never find it out. She's like, yes, they move the graves to a better neighborhood. And she makes this dig at how shitty the neighborhood is where mom and dad live. And I was like, who are these rich assholes? And why are the unemployed mom and dad eating with them? Did mom and dad win a contest? Did these rich people lose a bet? Are they going to later hunt them for sport? <laughs> That would all make so much more sense. Well, Amy and Eric, it's time for us to reveal the true purpose of your evening here tonight. Uh, We're going to give you a five-minute head start. After that, we come after you with crossbows. Oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Back at the house, things start getting really scary. Wink, wink. Finally. I mean, do they, Chad? No, they don't. They're fucking awful. Kendra's iPhone starts working as a ghost hunting Geiger counter, and she wanders around the house, listening to sounds coming from her phone through her earbuds. And then up in the attic, Griffin is laying in his bed under the skylight as lightning just explodes around this house. Yeah, yeah, the the power lines apparently have drawn the ire of the spirits, and they are now just shooting electricity directly at the house and its residents. Kendra makes her way to the garage, where the floor cracks, and then liquid shit pours up and just starts filling the cement floor around her. It's like that black goop that went into that hellhole in the basement of the Amityville Horror House that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, uh, or it could be black gold or Texas tea. We're not. It's uh, not. It's not. It's devil dog Beelzebub feces. 
<laughs> and oh, I bet that's a stinker. And <laughs> it's supposed to smell like roses. And so as this sludge stuff is bubbling up, uh, Kentra looks over her shoulder and she sees a corpse and the lightning strike. And it's it's one of those like, hey, it's there and it's gone kind of thing. And eh, whatever. It, a, another cheap jump scare. And this movie is just sick with them. And then she tries to run, but she slips and she's stuck in the ooze. And eventually a turtle also gets stuck in the ooze and it becomes a teenager and a mutant ninja. And then the basement door slams shut. And so she is trapped in there with all the, the ooze and the secret of said ooze. And then in Griffin's room, he's like, man, this place is really popping off tonight. The fuck is going on around here? Uh, hey, uh, uh, clown, uh, uh, I, I thought was in the, uh, in, in the secret room uh, is is fallen from its perch on my dresser. And then we see <laughs> that there is a squirrel gnawing furiously to get out of its trap. Right. And then the, the clown just starts scampering around all over the place. It's just, it, again, the subtlety of the original is totally lost on this movie. And mm-hmm. it just becomes a, a CGI clown attacking this kid. And then the squirrel gets loose. Good for that squirrel. And then the main clown doll attacks Griffin and he's screaming and yelling. Yeah. And then he kicks the clown in the head until it finally breaks. And then he runs downstairs to find. And then the tree from outside smashes through the skylight in his room and it rains down broken glass on him, but he don't get cut. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's someone that's like, you know, Carl, sprechen Sie glass. Ow, 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 ow. I think I got cut. I think I got cut. (laughs) Hey, Griffin. How you doing up there, cowboy? Griffin runs down to Maddie's room and outside there is a branch of the tree running its, you know, kind of long fingers over the house like a hand. And then at this point, the closet doors, they finally open, but not before Griffin's like, hey man, fuck this. I'm out of here. You know, Maddie, you're on your own. I'm going to go check on Kendra. So Griffin runs down the stairs to go check on his older bitchy sister. But as he gets to the top of the stairs, his body just freezes in midair above the staircase while Kendra is just screaming for help downstairs because she is ankle deep in liquid shit. (laughs) Right. She's worried about sepsis, clearly. (laughs) The tree reaches into the hallway and from the attic and then it grabs Griffin and just yanks him back up through the skylight in his bedroom. So he's gone. And all I'm thinking is this looks like that whomping willow from Harry Potter. Oh, yeah, that's a good call. I actually thought the shot of him getting yanked, like grabbed by the ankle and pulled up the stairs and then out through the skylight in a single shot. I I think all of this is dumb, but I was like, oh, that's a good shot at least. You think Sam Raimi showed up for the day on set and they were like, hey, Sam, how do you think we should do this? I don't know. Move the camera like a crazy person. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. Oh, we can actually provide a sense of energy and momentum through the movement of the camera. Huh? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you guys could do that if you wanted to. Yeah, he's like, yeah, and when we were doing Evil Dead, uh, we just strapped a camera to a board and just ran through the forest with it and made well, it a cool well, effect. Oh, sorry, sorry, Sam. Sorry, Sam. What was the name of that movie? Evil, evil Dead. Evil, evil Dead. Evil Is that D E E D? Nope, nope, nope. That's a D E A D. D E A D. Okay, I'm gonna. I'll check that out, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and again, this guy, the guy who directed this, did Monster House, which is legitimately a fun, you know, kind of mm-hmm. spooky kids movie. And it's I love Monster House. I don't love this movie. Yeah, and speaking of 3D, I've got Monster House in 3D, and it's a I'm pretty good 3D movie. <laughs> you know what I don't have in 3D? Fucking Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Back in Madison's room, we begin to see lights from the light bulbs float over and make their way into this darkened closet. And then one by one, all of the bulbs emit floating orbs as they all head towards the now open doors. And then Madison's favorite doll, it's this pig with a horn on it. Piggy corn, um, yes. Yeah, piggy corn. Um, it rolls like a log into the closet, luring the young Madison to follow. And Madison willingly goes into the darkness of the closet, and then she's gone. Again, this movie totally screws up the fright and fear of the original film, where Carol Ann is violently sucked into the closet. Yeah, yeah. She just walks in and then hands. They give it up for the jump scare here of her turning around and seeing that the closet door is like way behind her, uh, like she's in the TARDIS or something. And then Mm -hmm. a bunch of hands grab her arms and ankles. And they show up from Jim Henson's Labyrinth to really get hold of her. Boy, that Labyrinth is a good movie. I could go for scarier than this. I I could go for David Bowie and his giant cock in that movie singing Magic Dance anytime. Labyrinth is a movie. If you saw it as a child, you couldn't help but come away from that movie being like, "Did that guy have a giant rod in that movie?" I mean, was he erect the entire time they were shooting? (laughs) It is even as a kid. You're just like, that is a giant hog, that guy's sporting. Back in this movie, mom and dad show up back home to see Griffin fall out of the top of this massive tree, clunk on the ground. And I was just <laughs> like, pretty what was their thought when they showed up? Like, how did he get up there? Why was he up there? Yeah, they don't really stop to think about it too much because it turns out they've got bigger fish to fry. But yeah, immediately they're just like, Griffin, what did you hit your head? Kendra rushes out and she's in hysterics and she's like, I can't find Madison. And I was like, did you look in the top of the tree? That's where Griffin was. (laughs) Did she hit her head? And and then, uh, you know, Eric and Amy decide they're going to take a look because they've been responsible this whole movie. Uh Uh-huh. And they can't find her either and just kind of give up. And then uh, Griffin is near the television uh, where we saw Madison, you know, playing uh, Hansy with uh, all the ghosts. And he hears Madison talking from the television. He's like, well, I'll be fucked. Hey, hey, Eric and Amy. I mean, mom and dad, whatever. Get down here. You're going to want to hear this. And they come over (laughs) and um, he's calling for, uh, or I'm sorry. Uh, Garrett uh, or Garrett Griffin puts his hand on the television once they get downstairs and a little hand touches his from the other side. And (laughs) then uh, I like this scene where Amy is like, oh, my God, we got to call the police and get him out here because our child's been eaten by a television dad's like no no we are not calling the cops which means that he is selling drugs on the side to support whatever is going on in this family because he's like you gotta keep the cops out of here no look i don't care how many kids we lose i will have to go full-on goodfellas here and flush all my shit down the toilet this dude has a past he does not want to revisit yeah he is probably wanted in this state somehow some way and but yeah he's just like you are not calling the fucking cops Griffin feels all guilty because he left his sister in a room and she's now disappeared. So rather than call the authorities, mom and Griffin go to visit some academic nerds at a university led by this old lady, Dr. Powell. I say old lady. She's probably like 35. And she's there with her two assistants, Sophie, and there's Boyd. 
they're winners. Yeah, Jane Adams, just for the record, uh, who plays the lead uh, uh, psychiatrist here, is a delight. She was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, she was in a lot of Twin Peaks, is where I probably know her best from. But she's a really good actress. Again, really wasted in this movie. But yeah, so Amy has gone to this department because she went to college there, and the paranormal department was always kind uh, of a joke. But now, yeah. now she needs their help. And and it would be cool if any of this mattered, but uh, as as is the theme of this movie, it doesn't. Dr. Powell agrees to help out. So these busters of ghosts, they show up to set up their tracking equipment and then Boyd, the assistant, he starts recording and Boyd proposes that maybe this closet is a magic portal. And I was like, are you an academic? Because you come across as a real ding dong to me. Well, we saw Mr. Tumnus coming out of the closet earlier. We're pretty sure there's a Narnia-related situation happening here. And during this during this scene, we get a retread of a moment from the original. And Boyd, the academic assistant, he's this ghost nerd. And he says he captured a piano bench rolling 10 feet with some time-lapse film. And again, because this movie just does everything wrong, we cut to a little girl's tea set and table floating off the ground and one of the matching chairs just flies across the room and explodes with a loud you know like failed jump scare in the original film if you've never seen it this exact same scene happens only it's really really it's it's really well done and it's creepy and funny and hauntingly off-putting yeah well it's it's the same kind of story of like, oh, there was, you know, a sea sponge and we had it on camera. And Craig T. Nelson is so haggard and tired. And as yeah. the guy is explaining it to him, he's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. And then they just opens the door and there's utter chaos going on on the other side of the door. It, it is a tornado of toys in a child's bedroom. Right. Uh, like a lamp uh, floats in front of them and a light bulb screws into the lamp before their eyes and then turns on stuff like that. It's it's you really see the Incredible Hulk riding a horse. You do. I mean, it's all this really cool, clever stuff. And in this movie, it's just a chair flying against a wall and Sam Rockwell saying, did you record that? And Griffin being like, hey, dad, don't be an asshole, man. Like, these are the only people who can help us. How about you treat them with a little bit of dignity and respect? I know you don't have any of that for yourself, and that's a problem, and we can talk about that later. <laughs> Let's get to dad drinking some early times in front of the kitchen sink, as he does most days, from a coffee cup. I know that goes without saying, but for those who haven't seen it. And... um <laughs> It's how you hide it in plain sight. And then dad starts vomiting up like dirt and worms. And then his eyes kind of leak this black liquid. And look, it's just the poltergeist messing with him. You know how poltergeist can get, you know, all up in your head. And watching it, you're like, so I guess this is the parallel to the original film when the guy rips the flesh off of his own face in the bathroom mirror. Right. The scene that horrified a generation of children. Yes. Right. Yes. There is there a uh, fun fact. If you weren't aware of this, the hands that are gripping the face uh, are Steven Spielberg's in that scene. Really? Yeah. Like I did when, not know when that. The, the fake head is there with all the flesh pulled off of it. Yeah. That was uh, that was Spielberg. There you go. See, you learned something new from listening to our wacky show. <laughs> yeah. And it's terrifying. And also, the original film was rated PG. This movie is rated PG-13. Yeah, I would argue that the original Poltergeist is a lot more gnarly than this movie is. But by a, a fair 
degree. And I think this is like Spielberg getting off a little bit with the MPAA, where they're like, ah, it's Spielberg, it's fine. You know? Because this movie is way more toothless than the original film is. Completely. Mom comes in after this scene. She's like, hey, dad, what's wrong? And dad's like, I don't know, ghost or something, I guess. And then dad just dumps out a perfectly good bottle of hooch. And look, I want to take back my remarks earlier about him being an alcoholic. No respecting drunk is going to pour out that much perfectly good hallucinogenic alcohol. He's really going to regret that later when he realizes that the third card ain't going to buy him another liter. <laughs> I'm thinking you save that for New Year's Eve, man. He's going to be unscrewing the like the pee trap underneath the sink and drinking whatever's left in there. Take a swig of this. It'll really fuck you up. The last time I drank it, I thought I was vomiting worms and dirt. <laughs> it's the good stuff. Yeah, the only other person who can take that stuff straight is uh, Dr. Gonzo and Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> they actually soaked their carpet uh, at, at the sands with that stuff so that they were just constantly inhaling those fumes <laughs> so our college eggheads they're wiring the whole house with electronic doodads and who's it's and what's it's and then boyd the assistant you know the maybe it's a magical portal ding dong he goes over to griffin this 10 year old boy and he gets up in his face and he's like hey man uh i know your dad's been out of work for a while is he making all this poltergeist shit up, you know, so he can get on TV? And then Griffin's response is something like, hey, man, why don't you go fuck yourself in your magic portal, Boyd? I'm just trying to get my sister back. Why don't you fucking beat it? And then Boyd's like, respect, respect. <laughs> is your sister dating anybody? She's kind of hot. She's in a TV. No, not that one. Oh, oh, okay. No, no, she's single. You, you can take a shot at her. Trust me, my parents aren't going to mind. Mind, they're not going to notice. So do whatever you want. The next scene, Boyd goes over to put a sensor inside the proposed magic portal closet. And then we get a scene that I'm not even going to dignify with describing. It's meant to be scary with Boyd. It's pointless and it is a waste of time. I propose that we move on. I, uh, I concur. It's some business with the drill. It's terrible. Uh, moving on. Dr. Powell downstairs, she's explaining to Kendra and Griffin how there are two realities and that they can exist at the same time. And so Sophie, the female assistant, who doesn't really do anything in this movie at all other than toss some car keys to the family as they escape at the end. Sophie draws a circle on one piece of paper and then she draws a circle on another piece of paper and she overlays them both and holds them in front of a light bulb to explain how one reality can exist on top of another reality. And then Griffin, he's watching all of this very attentively and after uh, sophie's explanation you know griffin looks at her and he says you know what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things that i've ever heard at no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it i award you no points and may god have mercy on your soul yeah, I, I like the explanation is basically the opening lines of the Tales from the Dark Side series. You know, <laughs> man lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. But there is a world unseen by most. An underworld. A dark side. <laughs> Uh, Jane Adams, like after Griffin is like, Hey, uh, maybe somebody has got to go in this stupid theory realm of yours and go get my sister. It's the greatest moment in this whole damn film because Dr. Powell, she's like, 
That's not a bad idea. <laughs> right. No one thought of this. What kind of half-assed paranormal department are you running here? She's the doctor the way Dr. Pepper's a doctor. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Teeth also. <laughs> it would be great if she was just like, <laughs> Golden Teeth and Golden Ghosts, welcome to my presence. <laughs> it's a real honorary title, most likely self-imposed. Jane Adams and the and the ghost crew are like calling out to Maddie later. They're, you know, trying to get her to respond and they're getting Amy, the the mom to call for and they're listening for the, the to the TV for her to answer. And and she finally does and uh you know And then dad's like, "Hey dad, daddy's here too. I'm here I'm here too, baby. It's me daddy." Daddy, did you buy more shit? needy loser let me ask you this madison never really sounds like she's all that scared or in trouble it always sounds like she's calling home from camp yeah you know it's like it's a lot of like hi yeah i'm good not much yeah yeah i made i made friends okay yeah all right bye bye mom bye i gotta go yeah it's a real stark contrast because there there was that sense of like genuine peril from heather o'rourke as caroline in the original and in this one much like the they're here you know it's the same kind of delivery for this of like oh no mom dad there's <laughs> I, is that you oh no it's ghosts i need to run in the astral plane for a little while i <laughs> yeah the script actually says like i e e e i this movie then introduces these special effects where all the lamps fall over and we see Madison's shadow on the walls as she runs from room to room, you know, like they did in Peter Pan. Or or Bram Stoker's Dracula. But here it's done worse and to no real effect. I mean, it's an okay visual for a different slash better movie. Yeah, yeah. Like if Gary Oldman were like reaching for the parents or something, it'd be kind of creepy. Or frankly, if Gary Oldman just showed up in this movie as a shadow, it's just like, you know, uh, so what's going on then? Ghosts? Okay. I'm here for the rest of the, the duration. Uh, Gary Oldman, of course, uh, can disappear into roles. And uh, who do you need me to be? Oh, the father? Is he really that bad? Got it. You know? And we just, like, if at a certain point you just replace Sam Rockwell in this movie with Gary Oldman, I'd be totally fine with it. By the way, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Pick 6 Movies, Season 3, Episode 1. Oh, nice. Well done. Uh, on brand, that's what I like. And so <laughs> the the silhouette on the wall leads up to uh, Madison's room where they can hear her crying. And uh, Sam Rockwell in particular thinks that he sees Maddie in the closet and it turns out uh, it's an extra from Pink Floyd's The Wall who yep. doesn't have uh, actual features. It's just like a big clay face uh, with holes yeah. where the eyes and mouth are. And then he screams and then it's gone. Yeah. Dad takes a piece of broken wood from the tea set table and smashes through the wall in the closet, opening up that magic portal that Boyd hypothesized about earlier. You know what? Apologies to Boyd. His magical portal theory turns out to be correct. Good for you, Boyd. And then in the living room, the movie finally rips something off from the original film in a meaningful way. And the exit point from the aforementioned closet entry point appears on the ceiling in the living room. And it's here that Dr. Powell says, we're going to need some help from Kerrigan Burke. And Kendra, the teenage sister, says, no effing way. Because it turns out that this is the guy who is the host of that fake ghost hunting TV show that Kendra watches all the time. 
we're reminded here that Griffin has a drone because that's going to be important in about five minutes. And so we see the drone flying over the neighborhood uh, in daylight. Mm-hmm. And from that vantage, we see the arrival of uh, Jared Harris, a.k.a. Uh, Kerrigan Burke. And he he's all scarred up when uh, not just his naturally uh, kind of pockmarked complexion, but he's got scars on his face and arm and leg and whatnot. He looks like a cross between Popeye Doyle and Father Marin from The Exorcist. With just a dash, because of all the scars, just a dash of De Niro from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, also a pick six favorite. Season four, episode two. And uh, so he shows up and Griffin is like, hey, what happened to your hand? Season three, episode two. I fucked that one up. I got my seasons wrong. Scratch that. Yeah. Oh, great. Now the listeners are going to be pissed. I, I know. I know. My continuity is wrong. I don't have them all cataloged the way I used to. I'm getting older. Are you kidding me? I forgot we did that movie for a minute. And then <laughs> Griffin's like, hey, what happened to your hand, man? And he's like, oh, it was a spirit in a fruit cellar in Michigan. They didn't want to leave. And he says, fortunately, not all spirits are that angry. And then Griffin says, look, ours is, motherfucker. You need to get in there. It is a mess. And by the way, if my mom or dad approach you, just keep walking. They are going to be completely worthless to you in terms of information. You need something, you let me know. I'm your guy. So after uh, he exchanges uh, some mature conversation with Griffin, Kerrigan Burke goes in the house and there he, he meets uh, Jane Adams. And from jump, we understand like, oh, they've had a relationship with each other, which kind of matters a little bit, but not really. And then he's like, you know, well, take me to the haunting. And they go to the basement where, uh, you know, all the sludge is is still pooled around there. And he just kind of sticks his fingers in it and gives it a sniff. And mm-hmm. it's just like, uh-huh, that is shit. <laughs> you don't need to stick your fingers in it to give it a sniff. There are eight inches of liquid feces all around you. The people behind you have their nose covered with their shirts. It doesn't make a ton of sense. It, I wish he had tasted it. That would have been funnier. You know that laundry room smelled like a county fair porta potty. <laughs> yeah, something just riddled with funnel cakes. Yeah. F- flies, poor decisions. There might be the remnants of a. You know what? I'm going to stop right there. When was the. <laughs> were you going to say an abortion? Because that's where my mind yeah, went. Yeah, I was, but I didn't. When was the last time you were actually at a county and/or state fair? You know. It, it might have been when, like, it's probably been 20 plus years. I think we're going to probably take Jonas to uh, the one here. But whenever we see commercials on TV, we're like, oh, isn't that quaint? Because you're like, you have world-class theme parks in your backyard. But I think we may go this year just to sort of see the trashiness of it. Right. It's been a while. It's been a long time since I've had a low-grade whiplash event. <laughs> I, I really need to put my hands in the or my life in the hands of some carnies for a little while. Right. Right. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I like I like living dangerously as well. But yeah, so then he's like, "Let's go upstairs and see the closet." And it, you know, the doors are rattling and uh, it, all kinds of nonsense is happening. And then this is where like we just take a left turn in this movie that doesn't ever matter where Jared Harris is like, go on. (laughs) He asks, uh, you know, Amy and Eric, the parents has Maddie ever seemed off. And they're like, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, she has imaginary friends like uh, every kid does. He's like, no, no, she's a sixth sense child. Uh, we call it that because of the movie. And, 
<laughs> she sees dead people. When Boyd asked them, he was like, did Maddie ever talk to things that weren't there? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we all kind of, you know, talk to shit that isn't around every time again. And Boyd's like, good, good. Because Madison is a pure life force. That's why the ghost reach out to her. And also, this house is built on a cemetery. And I think they just moved the headstones. And then Griffin and Kendra are like, what the hell are you talking about, old man? And this is the big reveal from the first movie. During the nightmarish explosion of horror and mayhem in the original Poltergeist, you find this out. It is Soylent Green as people. It is icy dead people. It is Darth Vader saying to Luke Skywalker, I am your father. I don't understand how they so unceremoniously reveal the big twist of this film, unless, to your point, this is a sequel and it just doesn't fucking matter, which if that's the case, why not have the realtor at the very beginning of the film tell this family, you know what, this place is built on a cemetery, but they just moved the headstones. It's (laughs) insanely haunted. Anyway, they'll take a good deal if you're really interested. The housing crisis has really hit this neighborhood odd. Again, that's my argument for sequel over pure remake but it kind this of movie just fucks everything up. and it kind of wants it both ways it wants to be both a retelling of the original and a sequel to the original and it's kind of neither and you're being way too kind bo jared harris explains how all the ghosts that are hanging out because of the headstones being moved have they've joined together they voltron together into a mm-hmm. giant ghost known as the poltergeist right and is that like the borg <laughs> yeah where all the ghosts are just like resistance is futile we <laughs> i am sam rockwell of borg at this point burke spouts off more bullshit about how if madison goes into the light to help these tortured souls find relief in escaping their eternal pain and damnation that the family will never see madison again and then the dad just starts welling up and he's terribly sad because he's lost his daughter and he's kind of a loser and he doesn't have a job and he can't buy drones for his kids as much as they want and then burke says to this father i know how you feel and i've felt that way every day of my entire life why would burke say this i it's a fun question i don't know burke says he has felt this state of pain in losing a child and dealing with financial ruin every day of his entire life. Do you, do you think he felt that way when he was an infant lying in his crib? How about on his first day of kindergarten? How about when he went down a water slide for the first time? Did he feel that way? How about when he got his first kiss? How about when he got his first blowjob? How about the first time he ate a chicken wing or the first time he saw Mr. T? How about the first time he ever leaned back in a chair and almost fell over but caught himself and didn't fall over? Did he feel that way then? How about the first time he accidentally shit his pants when he thought it was just going to be a fart? You think he felt that way then? He's a liar. And he's a crazy person. Also, this is the scene where Sam Rockwell gives up. Because as soon as he's like, he gives him the spiel about, you know, I felt this way every minute of every day. Sam Rockwell's response is, all right, let's do this. And then he never says another thing in this movie like he means it. They do what I call the poltergeist, where they just get a big rope and uh, run a bath full of hot water. 
Burke is the one who provides this rope. Burke carries around this leather old school doctor's bag. And when he's like, all right, let's get down to brass tacks. He opens the bag and inside it is said giant rope. And as the best I can tell, that's all that's in that bag. He just carries around a doctor's bag with a giant rope, the kind that you would find, I don't know, dangling in a gym class. The Well, what you don't see in the bag is the uh, duct tape and scalpel. <laughs> the chloroform yeah the zip ties oh yeah. uh hey it's griffin over here uh mr burke um why do you have all this uh tarpaulin in uh in your <laughs> trunk oh don't worry about that griffin i it's for another project i'm working on see i'm creating ghosts <laughs> You talk about lock, stock, and barrel. He's got the whole thing covered, man. I've got them going out, and I've got them coming back. <laughs> he, he's a real-life monkey McBean, isn't he? <laughs> he's a, a smart businessman. They call that uh, taking a vertical slice of the industry. <laughs> So they run some bathwater for later, and then Sophie, remember her, uh, tapes a camera and light to the drone and is like, hey, uh, we need to fly this drone into the ghost dimension or whatever. And Boyd also hands out what are called geotrackers to everybody to pocket so that they can see where everyone is in the house. In the following scene, Kendra, she's being nice to her little brother Griffin for the first time in this whole movie because she's aimed her venom at Burke and his mangled leg. And look, Burke isn't wearing shorts. He's wearing long pants. So how can Kendra and Griffin know that Burke has a leg that's all melted? And Burke... Burke doesn't have a limp or anything to show that his leg's all jacked up. So we see the two of them and they're staring at him. And if you were a better filmmaker, you would show this brother and sister getting a glimpse of his leg. But because this movie is not very good, that doesn't happen. It's kind of the basics of filmmaking. And then (laughs) at this point, Burke goes over to Griffin and he's like, can you teach me to fly this drone? Your dad bought you in an attempt to buy your love. And then Griffin's like, no, you can't fly my drone. This is my drone, you stupid asshole. And Burke's like, look, I'm in charge here and I fly whatever goddamn drone I want to. And by the way, here's my leg. It's all chewed up and meaty. And he explains that, like, you know, when he was in Portugal in 2003, there was some bark beast of San Magalula that was living in a cave that he did battle with, and he came out alive, but the beast didn't. And then Kendra, who, again, is an insensitive bitch, she tells this guy, who is the host of the television show, that she loves. She looks at him and is like, I'm going to throw up. And she just runs off. Right. Fight. Oh, it's not your leg. It's other stuff. You're just disgusting me on every level. And it's here. It is at this point in the movie that we unnecessarily find out that Burke, the TV ghost hunter, that he used to be married to Dr. Powell, the university egghead, who is the head of the Busters of Ghost for our film. Yeah, which, by the way, Jane Adams and Jared Harris as Ghostbusters in a movie, far better film than what we're watching. I can't disagree with that. <laughs> and yeah. there, there's a quick scene between Sam Rockwell and Griffin where Sam Rockwell's like, well, I gotta tell you, I'm kind of scared right now. And Griffin's like, hey, sack up, old man. 
This movie tries so hard to fabricate a true human moment between father and son, and it's embarrassing. There was a greater bonding between Anthony Michael Hall when he slammed that can of beer with Chevy Chase out in the desert in vacation. <laughs> yeah, when Chevy Chase can't remember the name of one of his children. Yes, yes. that felt like a better parenting scenario. <laughs> This feels like if you took the scene from Jaws between Brody and his son, and then you dumped that into the ocean, and then you took a sample of that in a thimble, and you were trying to taste the Jaws in it, that's how much you get of true father-son connection in this film. Yeah, it's really, like you said, it's just embarrassing. And Griffin's just like, just get your fucking hands off me, old man. I got work to do. And... (laughs) So Jared Harris lays out what their plan is, which again is the poltergeist plan, which is, hey, we're going to throw this rope through the portal and then we're going to go after Maddie and get her out of it. Yeah. Burke says there are no rules in the neither world. There's no up. There's no down. There's no straight lines, which is why we have to make one, which I was like, so how is this lack of direction in the neither world going to make flying a drone even possible? Yeah, well, because he's also full of shit, because none of that is true. (laughs) It's just a shittier version of the house that they're in inside this ghost world, where there are, like, you know, CGI corpses everywhere. Right. And so they fly the drone in, and they find Maddie, and then the the ghost knock the drone away. They're, you know, and get rid of it. And then... Uh, Jared Harris and Sam Rockwell and the mother are all arguing about who's going to go into the ghost dimension to save Maddie. And meanwhile, they're like, hey, is anybody uh, paying attention to the geotracker for Griffin, the responsible character in this movie? Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, why? Because right, he's about to go in the closet. And, her, right. and everybody's like, oh, my God. And so they run up uh, after him, but he's already gone inside. And Why is this movie PG-13? I have no idea, man. I really don't know. Again, th- this is so much less like frightening and visceral than the original Poltergeist. I get that it was a different time, different place. I get that, you know, PG-13 now is not what PG-13 was then. But I feel like this movie is PG-13 because if it had a PG rating, then it's on the same playing field as uh, Daddy Daycare. Yeah. Well, I mean, the difference is Daddy Daycare is sporadically entertaining. (laughs) This movie is Right. Like, the rating system shouldn't be, oh, you can see a nipple in this one and you can say fuck in this one. It should just be like, oh, is this any good? This is rated G for good. And this is rated S for shit. Guess which one Poltergeist 2015 gets? (laughs) Hint, it's not G. (laughs) And... So in this neither world, Griffin runs in and he gets to see all of these poor, unfortunate souls, like, you know, reaching out to him and they're yanking at the rope. And as Griffin's going through, he finds uh, Madison, but the rope snaps and it whip through the neither world and it comes out the exit hole on the ceiling, but without Griffin and Madison. And as soon as you see this, you're like, oh, fuck yeah, these kids are going to die. But then boop, 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 Griffin comes flying out of the hole with Madison in his arm and they crash down on this mattress that they had laid on the floor in the living room. Right. And, you know, we take them to the tub, just like in the original movie, except it's not the mom and the daughter. It's, it's And it's not as good. And it's not as good, and they don't have chunks of jello 
clinging to them. Uh, yeah, weird ectoplasm and shit that you're like, I wonder what that smells like. Well, I what it tastes like. One of the mistakes I think this, this movie makes, um, among many, is going into the ghost dimension. It's kind of cooler not to know what that is. Right. And and just to see, like in the original Poltergeist, when Joe Beth Williams goes in to the closet after uh, Carol Ann and has the moment with Craig T. Nelson where she's like, you know, don't let me go, and goes in and then just suddenly shows up. And it's like, we have no idea what happened there. And it's it's kind of fun to let your imagination play that game. And I also like when she comes out, she has that white streak in her hair. Like it yeah. left its mark on her. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, it's kind of cool. I think I'm going to leave it. Right. Like all that stuff is so good. And it lets you be a part of the movie in that what you're imagining is so much more interesting than what you see in this movie, which again, it's just this big like CGI pile of ghosts that are writhing around and stuff like that. And it's just not, it's not very frightening and it's not very interesting. It's all kind of gray and brown and black and it all looks like garbage. And there's nothing about it that sticks with you again you know this is a very forgettable movie and one of the reasons is that even though you go into the the afterlife you go in the fucking afterlife in this movie chad and it couldn't be less interesting in the next scene the whole family runs down to their car they pile in and madison the youngest she says are we ever coming back and the mom's like no we're never coming back hell no and so Look, man, you own this house. You are financially responsible for the mortgage on this home. Haunted or not, you signed a legally binding contract. Yeah, they're going to rent it out. You know, uh, this is going to be rental property where it's just like, <laughs> hey, 750 bucks a month. It's a nice big lot. By the way, uh, if you have children, one of them's probably going to get sucked into the hell dimension. Everybody says goodbye in this movie. And quite honestly, we should wrap things up here. Kendra, the oldest, leans her head out and sees Burke, you know, her favorite mangled leg vomit inducing ghost hunting television program host. I'm wandering away and Kendra's like, hey, say the catchphrase. And then Burke was like, this house is clean. And even his best read of this line, which they make him do a couple of times in the movie, is so shitty. Yeah. This house is clean. It's a real, hey, mister, apologize to your sister. I'm sorry. Mean it? I'm sorry. <laughs> God. And then Kendra is just like, no, do it right. And he's like, fuck her. <laughs> right. And like the original Poltergeist had the good sense to just get rid of Janie for the whole movie. Like as soon as shit starts popping off, they're like, she's going to go stay with the neighbors and then she'll be back yeah. for the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she got killed in real life. Oh, did she really? Yeah, she got murdered. Oh my God, that's terrible. I think her boyfriend murdered her. Yeah, eh, it seems like something a guy would do. She stayed in the movie. She'd still be alive. <laughs> right. Or she'd be in the TV. At least she'd have company. After Burke says, this house is clean. They're happy. Maddie is like, he's full of shit, daddy. Um, and he's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, yeah, they were supposed to go in the light, but they didn't because I never went into the light. So they're just hanging out and they were waiting for me to say that. And then, uh, Sam Rockwell throws the car into reverse, but of course it doesn't go anywhere. It freezes in place. And then the car flips over and is dragged back into the house and Maddie has disappeared. 
the ghosts grab her and just drag her upstairs like a rag doll. And then Maddie is holding onto the door jam of her own bedroom until her mom shows up to grab onto her. And then, you know, Madison is screaming the whole time. And then the dad shows up. Thanks a lot, dad. You know, and then Kendra shows up and then Griffin and they're all, you know, making this chain of people to hold on to Madison. And it's a real you go, I go moment. Mm. And then out on the lawn, we get another helping of Burke screaming out, the power of Christ compels you, all of his kind of nonsense. And then the house crumbles a bit, and then Burke turns over to his ex-wife, and he's like, I'm tired of faking it for the TV cameras, ex-wife. I gotta save these people. So then Burke just runs upstairs into the house while the whole family escapes out of a window. Yeah, Everybody gets out except for Dad. And then Burke shows up, and then he gets sucked into the netherworld. Dad kicks out a window, and he escapes. And so one could assess that Burke really didn't need to go into the house to help this family at all. Well, he actually says, I, I, I've got to help these spirits go into the light, and I'm the only one who can do it. And you're like, why? What? Right. <laughs> why on earth is it? It could have been Madison, and she's a child. She doesn't know shit. So why does it have to be you? Why not Jane Adams? Why not Boyd? Let's get rid of that fucking character. What about Sophie? She hasn't done anything else except throw someone <laughs> some keys. Down on the ground, the younger female ghost hunter, Sophie. Uh, she tells him like, yeah, take my car. So the whole family yeah, jumps into this teeny tiny automobile. It looks like a clown car. And the whole family just piles into this automobile the size of a shoe. And then the ground begins to explode. And there's more, you know, brownie batter liquid shit oozing up out of the grass and the concrete. And then a corpse or maybe a zombie pops out to give us a good boo moment. And then everybody is in this smart car and off they go. And and as they back up, they run over their own mailbox again. Let's, you know, make a call back to their earlier hilarious moment. Way to fuck this movie up again. Just everything about this film is just out of place and, and just wrongheaded. Yeah. And and so after they take off, Jane Adams is crying because Jared Harris is, is gone. And then uh, somebody's just like, oh, hey, I think I got a ping. And then cut away from that because why on earth would you want to see him arise from the rubble after having, you know, made this sacrifice or whatever? Are we to assume that Burke is in the neither world? Is he lying beneath, I don't know, some crossbeams that crushed him as the house fell apart as the family escaped? Well, you might think that something interesting like he sacrificed himself for this family happened, but then... But they could have... Yeah. Right, but then there's a scene, you know, two scenes later that undoes all of that. So, D yeah, Dr. Powell looks off all wistful, you know, rather than rushing in to see if her ex-husband is, you know, bleeding internally. <laughs> right. She's like, let's cut to our family climbing out of a Grand Caravan SE. How they paid for that, I don't know. It's stolen. I have yeah, don't worry about it. And maybe the insurance settlement from their paranormal exploding house from the day before. Yeah, does Speaking of State way, Farm cover that much, shit? Yeah. How much time has passed since our last scene? Like a week? Six months? Ten years? Do you have any idea at all? No, you don't know where they are. Are they in the same town? Did they move towns completely? Who knows? Doesn't matter. The whole family gets out of this minivan or SUV, and on the bumper is a sticker, a bumper sticker, if you will, and it says, Hooper High Baseball. This lets us know that the dad is now a baseball coach. Or has st what stolen the van of a baseball coach. 
<laughs> and it's a tip of the hat to Toby Hooper, who you mentioned in the introduction as one of the two original film's directors. You know what, Bo? We have fun around here when we make movies, don't we? Yeah. Boy, that cocaine's a hell of a drug. The family is at another house that is for sale, and the whole family goes inside, and the realtor says it's got plenty of closet space, and there's a big tree outside. And the family collectively says, and they just run out the front door, get in their car, and just burn rubber and get the fuck out of town. The only thing it's missing is somebody hammering a xylophone as they run out of the place. It's it's a real Scooby Doo retreat, and and so yeah, they they drive off, kind of laughing like, <laughs> yeah, we dodged Satan yet again, and they take off as rock music plays, and then we get our final coda on the film. It's a little stinger. Yeah. You get some credits, but then we fade back in. Right. All Marvel movie style. You're like, oh, what's the <laughs> next Poltergeist like going to be? It's like Cannonball Run. <laughs> yeah. And it's Jared Harris, uh, like in a, a crypt or something, and he's talking about how it's haunted, and he's like, it's time to clean this house. I am Book Kerrigan. And then Jane Adams steps out and interrupts the scene, and surprise, surprise, Chad, uh, hilarity will ensue because Jane Adams and Jared Harris are now back together, and they're doing the stupid house ghost cleaning show uh, together. The end roll credit. Yeah, finally. Finally, this movie is over. This movie is 90 minutes long, and it feels like somebody's punching punching in the left nut for the entire duration. I'd seen this movie once before, and when we decided to do it for our show, I watched it again, and when I went in to really pay attention and do notes, I, I was so just just overwhelmed with a lack of inspiration of like, this is just such a slog of a movie to get through. Yeah. It's a truly, truly terrible adaptation of a great movie. And to your point, you could have done a shot-for-shot remake of Poltergeist, and it Uh would have been a million times better. Absolutely. The poster for this film is a creepy clown doll, which has nothing to do with anything in this film. Yeah, and there's a hashtag on the poster that's hashtag what scares you, to which I reply, watching this fucking movie again, am I right? Yeah. Up top, smack. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bad. This may be the least enjoyable movie I've watched for this show. And we've watched a lot of really shitty movies, but I was pissed off watching this for the third time. Yeah, I I think the real disappointment from this movie just comes from the fact that the the source material is so good. And it's Mm. crazy how much they get wrong in trying to remake it. it, Like, you don't have to turn, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have to turn everything up to 11. You don't have to have the Amityville shit. You don't have to have a million clowns instead of just one. The the tree doesn't have to like grab someone frozen in midair. You can do all that stuff in a much more subtle way, and it's genuinely scary. And this just never it, it doesn't ever hook you either emotionally or as a horror film. And the timing is all off on it. You know, like I've often said, like horror movies are like comedies, and they're both built around the idea of timing of when do you place the scare and this movie just doesn't get any of it right no it's not only just the scare i think in the original what makes it work so well is that it has these quiet moments that really create a sense of intimacy and vulnerability like i think about 
about in the original film, the woman who's the head of the ghost hunters, as she explains, you know, why poltergeist act out the way that they do. And the little boy in the original film, when he went as they, the, all of the dialogue is whispered, yeah. you know, and he was like, in my school, there are these bullies and they're angry. And she was like, yes, yes, it's just like that. And you just kind of you're you're drawn into these very, you know, personal, intimate, quiet moments. And that all works. And this movie doesn't have any of that. Yeah. If you've never seen the original and you're listening to our show, first off, send us a line. We'd love to meet you. <laughs> How did you find us? And, you know, why are you here? But if I mean, the original is, is so good. And this is just not. Yeah, it's real bad. Speaking of real bad, Chad, uh-huh. we've got uh, another. We, this was our midway point. Yes. We have reached the absolute nadir of this season. If, if Yeah, we're, we're coming up on the fourth episode of this season. And I can't think of a movie better for the fourth episode than, you know what? The Fantastic Four. Well, that is the kind of synergy I like to see in our brand. Mm-hmm. Well, you know about it. We're watching the Fantastic Four, but it's not that one. It's this one. It's the 2015 version of the Fantastic Four. I hope I have that year right, which came out the same year that this Poltergeist movie came out, if I'm doing my math correctly. And this other Fantastic Four is absolutely awful. Not as bad as Poltergeist, but it's pretty damn close. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to spoil it too much, but at least people's heads fucking explode in that Fantastic Four movie. That's all right. Yeah. And I think they're both rated PG-13. One of them deserves it. The other one doesn't. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, So I'm excited to do uh, some super heroism next week and uh in the meantime if uh if you want to reach out to us pick six movies at gmail.com and uh drop us a line uh let us know what you enjoy you can also pitch us ideas for uh entire seasons uh as we have often said we will largely ignore those but we'll entertain mm-hmm. them yeah sure you can also find us on facebook and uh, a few other social media outlets you know or not you know uh tell a friend uh let us know what you think we sure have a good time doing this show and we hope you enjoyed listening to it so uh bo let's come back in one week's time so so far this season we've had monster movies we've had science fiction we've had horror we're going to have superheroes the next season and for the final two it's a mystery grab bag it's gonna be actually it's gonna be fantasy and it's kind of horror come back and see us in one week's time we got the fantastic four coming up um it's not that one it's this one it's gonna be the one you probably haven't seen or the one that you hated the most so we uh we guarantee it's gonna be a good time hat for all and uh we look forward to you in one week's time hearing us uh you know riff on yet another terrible motion picture excelsior ha <laughs> ha